0: This is Big Dreams, Bold Moves, the podcast inspiring families like yours to discover endless possibilities for living abroad. Because life is too short to settle. I'm Malia and I will be your host as we travel around the world speaking with experienced expats and experts. We're going to learn how to get visas, make money, and find jobs abroad. We'll get a behind the scenes look at what everyday life with kids is really like in different countries, and get you the answers you need to go from daydreaming to international move-making. Now, let's get on our way. I'm back! That's right, I'm finally back from my hiatus. Uh, Never underestimate how much time it takes to resettle on the other side of the world with small humans. Um, We have been through a little bit of everything. We've been through some jet lag. We've done a little bit of travel. We've had sicknesses. My son even managed to break his collarbone in the last month, but we are feeling better and happy to be back in our routines and back in our home, and I'm so happy to be back with you Uh, This episode has been a long time coming on immigration to Australia. I actually recorded this interview with Julie Williams from Migration Down Under back at the end of June, and she has been so patient while I sit on it. Um, She has let me know that no major changes have happened since we did this interview, so all the information in it should be relevant. So a little backstory, um, my husband and I actually lived in Australia from 2011 to 2013, right before we had our first child. And that opportunity came up almost, it seemed to like drop out of the sky. Uh, I believe we manifested it. That's a long story for another day, but, um, yeah, we got this incredible opportunity from, it seemed like nowhere and we were able to go down there with visas and work and, um, things just very easily fell into place. And we had this apartment at the beach and, uh, my husband was able to go surf every morning before work. We made friends, fast friends with really fun people. We saw kangaroos. We lived in the sun. Uh, it was just like the quintessential Australian dream. Um, it, in 2013, I got pregnant. And uh, I think I mentioned this in episode one uh, when I talk about our move to Germany. But I basically decided when I got pregnant that I, I needed to, to go home and be close to my family and, and have a baby. And I wanted the idea of the American dream. So we left Australia and I have to tell you, I swear I have, re- we have regretted that move at least a little bit every single day. We have missed and longed for Australia every day since we left. Um, and we've always held out hope that we would be able to return someday. And we've been more and more open to it. However, in the last couple of years, and we will talk about this in the interview with Julie Williams here today, the laws have gotten stricter and it's less and less likely, it feels, that you can find a company to sponsor you to move over to Australia like was kind of um, more commonplace and easier done back when we did it Uh, Some years ago. So I have spent a lot of time uh, looking at the Australian immigration website and trying to figure out how we could go about applying for our own visas um, or what are the? How, what is the best way for us to get back to Australia? And I've had so many questions, so I'm so excited to have our guest on today to answer some of those for me. Um, if you have never looked into getting a visa in Australia, this episode could be a little bit overwhelming. Uh, it's a lot of information. I would recommend maybe checking out some of the links in the show notes before you get started, just to kind of get an idea of what we're going to dive into. This episode is really for you, though, if you are somebody that has invested some time already and researched um, how you might get a visa in Australia, and if it's a possibility for you and your family. uh, Hopefully today, Julie Williams is going to be able to answer some of your questions and give you a clearer idea of some... uh, next steps or first steps, and what the process looks like, and what the best course might be for you. Okay, without further ado, please meet Julie Williams. Welcome, Julie, to Big Dreams, Bold Moves.
1: Thank you very much, Maria. Nice to be here.
0: I am personally so excited for you to be here because I have so many questions about immigrating to Australia, and I am positive that I'm not alone here. I, I feel like everyone in the English-speaking world has probably wondered at some point in time if they could live in Australia, um, unless they're maybe like definitely afraid of spiders or something, or snakes. Uh, yes,
1: that's true. There have been a few people <laughs> that have been deterred by that, um, but they're really not that uh, that bad
0: and i know i didn't send you this question in our in my inter- email before but i was thinking maybe it'd be helpful for you to sort of explain to listeners just the gist or the short story of um what's going on in australia right now in terms of immigration and laws and how they're changing yes
1: well it seems to be an ever changing um, play at the moment with um with visas especially Probably it all started um, at the beginning of 2017 when all the major changes came through. And that was specifically with um, skilled migration and employer-sponsored. And it just seems to be a continuing trend um, by the government uh, to try and um, I think they've been listening to minority groups where there's a lot of fear factor in um, people, you know, temporary residents, overseas residents and taking Australians' jobs. So they have been trying to secure um, Australian uh, employment but I think it's going to be to the detriment because I think they really are um, going to be narrowing Australia's um, global performance without the, really, the required and needed skill set from overseas. So... The trend has been to make it a lot more difficult for individuals to migrate um, who are skilled migrants that might have been an o- occupation um, you know, two years ago that it could have easily come through, but now are finding there is only a pathway for temporary residency as opposed to permanent residency. And the trend appears to be That they're really trying to push everyone into employer-sponsored visas rather than independent skilled, um, in the hope that they are going to actually continue to work um, in their nominated occupations in the skilled areas um, where there are skill shortages and requirements.
0: Okay, Um, did you say that they're they're pushing towards employer-sponsored visas?
1: Pushing through.
0: Yes, it, it seems because it doesn't bit, feel like that. Doesn't
1: feel like that, does it? No. Um, at the beginning, no, it didn't feel like that. It felt like that because they really did pull the whole system apart and divide occupation lists and, and send some people down a pathway to um, to you know uh, to permanent residency and others to a to a pathway to nowhere. Um, not uh, allowing them any um, options to, um, you know, to apply for permanent residency because really and realistically, who is going to, pa- you know, pack up their their world and, and travel? You know, mostly essentially, everybody sort of has to <laughs> travel halfway around the world to get to Australia because we are so far away. Right? Who's going to do that for only two years? Whether they're an individual um, that are going to set aside their career. Um, to get, you know, to to work here in Australia to assist um, the skill shortage but then only be told, well, thank you very much, see you later, Um, to families who have a lot more um, to lose where they're packing up families, partners and they have, um, you know, really good job prospects to to offer them a better option um, and a better way of life to only be told that... um, you know, they can only remain here temporarily the maximum four years, which really, you know, who is going to do that? Um, so, you know, absolutely there has been a change and shift in the ability of people being able to um, remain permanently through employer sponsorship. But in the last probably six months, um, there's been a real change and shift in um reducing the independence uh, eligibility, being able to apply for residency. So um, people who are highly skilled or on the medium long-term list, they may not have an employer to sponsor them, have the option to to come out um, directly as a permanent resident. It's a points-based application where they get so many points for their work experience, their age, their English language ability, qualifications, etc. Now, to lodge an expression of interest is 65 points. And once upon a time, if you had 65 or even 70, you'd be fairly well assured that it's just a matter of time of receiving that invitation to lodge a permanent residency. But because there is such competitiveness and the department are reducing the numbers... Um, they're pushing the points required further and further up um, to, at the moment, it's, it's around 75, 80 points. In some instances, for highly skilled accountants, is 85. And for that, you know, it's, a lot of it's quite impossible. And whereby in January 2019, at the beginning of January, they were um, inviting 2,500 and they send out invitation rounds once a month, but in the month of—I um, haven't looked at June because they haven't published it—but May and April, they only invited a hundred people. It's a hundred people out of thousands of applications. Um, so they're really manipulating the, the skilled migration system uh, to push people into employer-sponsored and um, show that they're genuinely going to be working in that, um, that skilled occupation. The funny thing is, you know, they, they show that um, for each financial year they're going to issue a certain number of visas, um, but we're not quite sure where that, that's going to be achieved if they're cutting the numbers so dramatically with skilled migration, but from a practical experience um, we here at Migration Down Under have noticed and other colleagues in the industry have noticed um, the employer-sponsored applications are being granted a lot quicker. Um, we're talking a few weeks or a month where it was taking 12 months. So, um, and when you're talking
0: where- about um, employer-sponsored, you're talking mm-hmm. about people who have been offered a job offered in Australia job. and then is the employer applying on their behalf?
1: Correct, yes. Okay. Um, how it works, uh, employer-sponsored is um, the employer has to have a uh, um, an opening for an occupation that is on the skilled occupation list. Um, they have to nominate what the occupation is and they also have to nominate the person or the applicant they wish to fill that occupation with. So they have to offer a full-time position and pay um, the market rate salary and show that there is a genuine need for an ongoing person in whatever occupation that is. Um, And so they're offering that sponsorship and they're having to pay substantial fees because there's additional training levy funds now payable. Um, So some of the smaller companies can be a little reluctant. Um, But if there are employers that have got genuine needs for these skills and they find the right person and that right person is an overseas uh, resident, then they will uh, offer sponsorship. And then the second part of of that is the visa applicant having to have the the required skill level. So if it's a temporary visa, for example, they must have the relevant tertiary qualification plus um, a minimum of two years relevant experience. And uh, for permanent residency, it's um, a little bit
0: longer. They have to have a minimum of three years experience. I'm uh, wondering if many employers realize that there's that push now to do employer-sponsored visas because kind of the response that we have heard is that um, that laws have gotten so much stricter, it doesn't seem like a lot of employers want to even try. I don't know... Um, mm-hmm. If they've had bad experiences, or if, if it's just so hyped up in the news that they don't even want to go there. But it seems like even big international companies are just kind of not open to it at the moment. That previously were bringing people back and forth quite a bit.
1: Uh, it, certainly for um, temporary residency, um, it's become a lot more cumbersome for employers and a lot more expensive. Um, so they're certainly not offering positions to people that approach. Employers, if they apply for a job, but if there is an employer um, genuinely, you know, finding somebody that they need, they will, you know, they weigh up the costs. They weigh up. Well, I've been looking for this, you know, someone to fill this position for six months. If I get a recruitment company to to find me someone, it will end up being more expensive um, in the long run than if I was to pay the visa fee. And some also um, are a little reluctant um, due to the fact that the occupation and wishing to sponsor may only, you know, result in a two-year visa, a two-year temporary visa, and, the, and you know, the government fees are a, a minimum of, um, you know, 3000 $4,000 um, for the employer to, uh, to pay. So, yes, there is some um, resistance there. Um, from some employers. But like anything with the introduction of new criteria, new requirements, increase in fees, you see a lull and you see a real dip um, in applications, but then it settles down and employers realise that they then have no choice um, if they want these people, that they have to go through the process.
0: So there is some hope. For employer-sponsored visas, and um, you were speaking before about the point system. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with the application process for, um, how would you say initiating your own independent skilled visa? How does that? How does that process work? Can you explain?
1: You have to. Um, you have to be on an occupation list, um, the medium long-term list in highly skilled occupations. Predominantly there's engineering positions, um, medical, health, IT and uh, quite a few trades as well. And um, the first step is to have your skills assessed. So you have to have a skills assessment with the relevant assessing authority and usually that means you do have to have a formal tertiary uh, qualification. If it's a profession, then it will be a, a degree qualification if it's a trade, then it needs to be a trade certificate, um, and dependent on the occupation, you may require a skills assessment. Is usually submitting um, all your evidence in support of your qualifications, your degree, your transcripts, etc. Uh, whereas, if you're whereby a tradesperson um, may require an actual practical assessment as well,
0: and they are done
1: um, in various locations overseas.
0: Um, so. Would you start that process before you, so my understanding is there, um, you can go to the government's website and I can put a link to that in the show notes and quick before you get a formal skills assessment, get, um, do the kind of points inventory. What is that a points calculator to mm-hmm. see if you might even be eligible? Is that where you, yes,
1: Absolutely, and, and that's where you know we you know they can go in on the website themselves and, and do that for certain or um, if we have people coming to us, then we will do that for them to see what they're, you know whether they are going to get the points and whether it is worthwhile going through that first step. But if they have got sufficient points, then the best um, the first step of the process is to have your skills assessed. Um, the second step is to um, complete an English examination. And um, that may be a requirement for your skills assessment depending on what uh, occupation it is. So, for example, for for, um, secondary school teacher, engineers, um, accountants all require um, English language testing prior to uh, as part of the skills assessment requirement. So that's the first thing. The second is, um, yeah, sitting an English language test. I mean, those with UK, US, Canadian, Irish, uh, New Zealand passports, etc., then um, you already meet the English language criteria. However, uh, the trend is that even native English speakers are sitting the English language test to obtain maximum points. Um, to optimise their um, chances of being invited to lodge an application.
0: Okay, so you have to do all of that before you even submit the the first application.
1: Yes, because you do that um, absolutely to do the skills assessment, the um, English test, and then um, and then once you've completed those, you lodge what's called a, an expression of interest. And the expression of interest will also give you calculate your points for you. Um, and as I mentioned, um, some of the the basic uh, um, where you get points is for age, English language, work experience, qualifications, and um, the you know maximum points. Just to give your audience an example um, of the. The ideal age is anywhere between 25 and 32 um, because you're getting maximum points. 33 to um, 39, you're getting you know, less points than you would uh, five less points. But then again, you're a little older then, so you might have more experience, so you might be able to build up those points in getting experience. Those um, who are already in Australia and have the ability to work whether that's on a temporary employer-sponsored visa or working holiday, um, will get more points for their work experience in Australia as opposed to work experience overseas. Um, So it's up to... They only count um, in your last 10 years of work experience immediately preceding the lodgement, and it goes up in increments. So um, if it's overseas experience for three years, you get five points, Five, uh five years, you get 10 points. Uh, for eight years, you get 15. Whereas um, if you're working in Australia, you only need to work 12 months to get five points. If you work three years, then you get 10 points. So there's incentive for those that are already working here in Australia. Um, Other ways, people get points to, to really push it up um, if they have... Um, a, uh, a, a, a another language um, that is of um, it, that their interpreted translator level um, of that um, that other language that's a way of getting five points um, those that have studied in Australia get um, further points and there is a real push um, by the government at the moment um, to encourage people to regional um, centres of Australia to um, get them out of the cities and the metropolitan areas. So those that are um, work, uh, studying or working in regional areas um, could obtain concessions for some of their points or obtain more points um, to maximise their um, their ability to obtain an invitation.
0: Sorry, with that... Um... That information. So, if you found an employer that was out in a more regional rural area, would and they had a job and offered it to you, and you were overseas, would that application be more that visa application be more likely to go through because it is a less "quote unquote" desirable area to work or in greater uh, need?
1: Yes, absolutely. But um, we're crossing over there with the points and the employer sponsored. Yeah. Um, so they had a job offer, then they would be going through the employer-sponsored and it wouldn't be
0: points. Okay. With the points, how, if you were going to uh, lodge your expression of interest, is there a section in that application or that form where you can say that you are interested in living in a rural or regional area?
1: Yes. Yes, there is. Okay. There's uh, options there to um, to say which state would your preference be. Um because your occupation may not be, uh, for example, if you've got a job offer and um, the employer's, you know, offering you a job in a more remote area, then you may obtain state sponsorship um, and your occupation may not be on the main list, but each state has their own separate um, list or their desired occupations that they feel that they need in their state or territory.
0: Okay. It's very complicated. I'm imagining it would be very helpful to go to a service, like going to Migration Down Under and having somebody walk you through all this. Or um, what exactly do you help with?
1: Yes, look, we we advise and assist from, uh, you know, I guess we try and save you time and money um, in being able to navigate you through the complexity of the um, Australian immigration law, and we're able to, you know, advise whether your occupation is on any list at the moment because those lists are changing. The states are changing them all the time. Sometimes they're closing them. Um, the government lists get updated every six months. Um, so we try we navigate um, applicants through, I guess, the maze and provide them with options. They may think they only have one option and we may be able to give them, even though it might not be as desirable to them, that there might be a couple of options open to them. Um, and um, we assess their eligibility and um, you know, perhaps give them different, um, different pathways that they possibly didn't, uh, didn't realise because whilst there is a lot out there on the government website the website's just an information service and doesn't um, highlight to um, the applicant sort of the legal criteria behind it or the intricacies or the policy that they're you know, the current policy trend in, in how they're preferencing and, and what they're doing. And that's something that we can, we can provide um, information to.
0: Wonderful because it is ever changing. So dynamic uh, so complex. There's so many different layers of it. And then um, often when I've been on the different states' websites listing, I guess, the needs for their area and stuff, sometimes they are like dead links or uh, you get the list of the skilled occupations and it's it's enormous. And I think it would be really helpful to talk to someone and have them help you before you get too far down the process and too far into your skills assessment and investing money other places, make sure you're doing it the right way.
1: That's right. Because it may be just something small that you may you, you might just miss out on a small element of the application that you think you've got it all. Um, and often there's no second chances. They just refuse it. And,
0: um, and you know, you've got a lot, you've lost a lot of money there. And, and once you're refused, once it's denied... You can't apply again, can you?
1: Um, it depends on the circumstances. Yes, you can. Okay. Um, it depends on what the refusal was based on and whether you're onshore or offshore. and um, If you're not in Australia, then absolutely, there's nothing stopping you from um, applying again. It's just dependent on the reason why it was refused. Uh, the same with the skills assessment. Skills assessments are often... Um, refused and then there's options to have it revisited and renewed but obviously they do charge further fees for that and um and and that's where i think a lot of individuals require assistance uh, with the skills assessments because they're not actually black and white how they appear and um, and there are no options for requesting further information because skills assessing authorities just have such a large volume they're just not in the they're not interested in giving you a second um, chance to provide further evidence um, they do if they after they refuse it but then they charge more money for the benefit of doing that
0: and what are some of the um, skills that are most in demand at this moment
1: Most in demand that's a good uh, good question because there are hundred or so you know, on, on the occupation list. Um, it's more it's not so much in demand, but it's more those that appear to be popular from an applicant's point of view. Um, you know, there's a lot of people wanting to apply for a, as an accountant, there's a lot of people wanting to apply for IT specialists, such as web, you know, not web developers, sorry, software developers, developer programmes, etc. And because of the sheer volume, then they're inviting um, sort of pro rata over the year, so it's a lot more difficult um to get those um, you know to uh, to apply under those occupations so you' you've got a better option and a better chance if you're in a more niche occupation that is on their medium long term list, but it's not one that's um super popular at the moment, which IT and accountants are, and so therefore the points have gone up and, you know, they require 80 or 85 points. So we see people sitting in the, um, in the expression of interest pool where they can sit for two years uh, waiting for invitations with 70 points, which once upon a time would have been guaranteed them an, uh, uh, an invitation to apply for residency. Um, but it's no longer so. But, um, yeah, so it's not so much occupations in demand because it changes all the time, and that's why the occupation list change because they're in consultation with um, relevant industry groups and, um, and also um, the Department of Employment. Uh, they look at the trends as what's, uh, what's required. So, I mean, employers could be screaming out for all sorts of different occupations, but they're not necessarily there on the occupation list or provide an avenue for residency. Okay. So, for example, you know, there's a big boom in tourism at the moment in uh, in Queensland because all the resorts have reopened and um, after cyclones and things like that. But they're in desperate need for restaurant managers, chefs, cooks, and the government are making it very difficult for those people to uh, to apply. So employers are wanting one thing, <laughs> employees are wanting another, and, and then the government's not sort of able to assist in, in, um, in joining them
0: there. Okay. I would just encourage all of our listeners to go have a look at the list and I will have it the link on the show notes. But um, it doesn't matter what – I think a lot of times people might think that Governments are mostly looking for like these executive level or business professionals, but that those lists are incredibly varied. I, I remember back when I lived there looking and seeing that there was like a high need for hairdressers and there were a lot of agricultural roles and tradesmen type roles Um just
1: yeah, absolutely. Hairdressers are no longer there for on the list for um, sort of permanent or long-term, but certainly tradespeople, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, um, you know, certainly um, if you've got the uh, right qualifications and you've got the relevant work experience, um, then there is certainly demand uh, for that area. And then in regional areas there might be some more obscure Uh, occupations more sort of leaning towards the agricultural side that are in need, where you don't have to be highly qualified um, as long as you are skilled in that uh, particular occupation. Sometimes, though, now that the English level is so high um, and the competitiveness with getting uh, an invitation on the points-based, tradespeople struggle sometimes, even native English speakers uh, to meet the English language criteria to obtain the necessary points so um, that's something just to be aware of if you're a tradesperson um, very good with their hands but often not um, requiring in their um, in their trade to um, have to write written you know perfectly university level written English seems to be a requirement for the department it's like you know why do chefs need to have beautifully written English uh, when by creating amazing dishes in five-star restaurants
0: that, Right, amuses uh, us. So migration down under can help with skilled visas. What other types of visas are you able to help with?
1: Yeah, so it's not only the, the skilled visas, but also family migration. Um, you know, a lot of people already have family here. Um, children, they may wish to uh, migrate as um, parents, um, a lot of people fall in love um, with people that are from overseas, especially now that um, international travel has become so it's accessible. There's um, a lot of partners um, seeking advice and information. So there's options out there for um, for partners, whether they are um, looking seeking to get married, whether they are already married, whether they're in a de facto relationship. Um, there's a, a lot of options there. For um, partners as well, um, child visas um, we assist with as well. So there's a lot of um, lot of family migration and um, as well as skilled migration. But that's sort of probably the two uh, the, the basics of migrating to Australia. Um, it's either through skilled pathway or family migration. Um, and and again, over the, you know looking over the years. Um, sadly, it has become a lot more difficult for um, family migration where people have had a skilled occupation and they could get sponsored um, by their siblings. That's no longer an option anymore. Um, so that's sort of tightened up and narrowed. And partners, um, dependent on where the, the persons are located, can also take... Um, quite a long time to um, obtain. It's not unusual to wait, you know, eight to 12 months uh, for a partner visa to be uh, finalized and granted.
0: Um, So what would you recommend are some good first steps for someone? Should they go first looking for a job or should they look at those skills lists? Should they check out the points calculator? How how should one of our listeners get started?
1: It's really difficult, I think, um, to look for a job because if, especially if they're overseas and they haven't got that um, experience in the Australian market um, because they're competing against all the local market. And even though there is a shortage in that um, occupation, it's very rare that employers will opt for an overseas candidate as opposed to an onshore candidate. But sometimes, you know, especially if there's... So they would need to look very closely to a lot of the advertising positions as to whether there is a specific request to be a permanent resident uh, or a citizen of Australia before they can apply. I think probably the best option is to have a look at points to see what sort of points they've got. Um, to try and come out independently and depending on the age of um, some people they may, uh, and the countries that they're coming from, uh, if they haven't been to Australia before, there might be an option for a working holiday visa where they can come out and um, work and holiday for, um, for 12 months, which then gives them a greater chance of securing um, a sponsor because then they've been tried and tested in the Australian market and the employer really values them um, on the working holiday or working holiday visa, they can only work for six months. And if an employer really sees the value in in keeping that employee on, they will seek to uh, to sponsor them. So it's often easier if you are in Australia. So if you're between um, 18 and 30 and from a country um, that has... Uh, reciprocal sort of arrangements with the working holiday scheme, that could be an option for you. Uh, Canadian and Irish citizens can apply up to the age of 35. Um, They are hoping that other countries' age will be extended as well, but it's, I think, still up to not just Australia but the other country that they're negotiating with for them to also offer the same reciprocal arrangement to, um, to Australians. So... That that's, could be an option for people from you know, countries that allow
0: for that. Let's see if Donald Trump wants to bump that up to uh, age 40 <laughs> or even <laughs> higher. I think that could be something so fun for people of retirement age to do also.
1: Exactly. I was just about to say there really needs to be a working holiday retirement one. So yeah. So like 60 or 65 plus. There's so many people that would love to travel and work around Australia Especially
0: with the often with the working holiday visas, people end up doing some time work. They where the needs are is really in the agricultural areas. I feel like older generations would enjoy that maybe more. Yes, Mm.
1: but even in you know maybe looking at uh, occupations like childcare or or working in the Bunnings hardware, there's often you know retired tradespeople that are working in those areas just a couple of days a week. And oh yes, there's uh, you know been a lot of um, talk about there really does need to be a need for um, a senior citizen uh, working holiday visa. Yeah. I think it would
0: benefit a lot of people. Oh, definitely. All right, baby boomers. Um, let's take that on. It's a great idea. Yeah. Um, so if we go back to the skills visa, if someone is granted a skills visa and they're while they're overseas, how long do they have to ta- take advantage of that? Um, do they need okay. to then go to Australia within a certain amount of time or could they sit, say I applied from here where I'm sitting in Germany and I was granted a visa. Do I have time to sit here and look for jobs in Australia before we go or do we need to just go to Australia and then try to find a job?
1: That's a really good question. Um, you, what, you have 12 months from, the, um, it's not necessarily from the grant of visa, Um, they grant the visa and it will be 12 months from the expiry of when you've completed your medical or police clearances. Um, So depending on how long they've taken to process your visa, if they've taken several months and you did your medicals and police clearances right at the beginning of the application, you might only have four months to be able to go and validate your visa. Um, otherwise, if you've just recently done them prior to a decision, you'll have the better part of 12 months to go and validate your visa. So you don't you don't have to um, go and start living there straight away, but you do have to at least enter Australia once um, to validate that visa before the that expiry date, and then you actually have five years before you actually you know have to go and start living there, otherwise you will lose your residency after that. Um, so sometimes people choose to go, you know, take a holiday and just validate their visa just to go and have a look and see, especially if they haven't been to Australia before, um, to see what options there are out there and to see what job opportunities and, um, you know, preferences as to where they would like to live and reside.
0: Okay. So I feel like if someone is really interested, it's a good idea to go ahead and get the ball rolling now because it's going to take a good amount of time for all of this to get going. And you want to apply younger than older at this point. Um, Yes.
1: And before any changes occur again, because even though they're supposed to give you advance warning of changes, they don't necessarily always And that was proven in April 2017 when they stood up and made very dramatic changes without any consultation um, to even their own (laughs) departments. So, um, yes, if you're eligible, then don't delay um, because it's better to secure that because you do then have the option to have another five years before you've actually got to uh, activate it and or not activate it sort of move on it you have to activate it a lot sooner but then you have the option to to delay your departure if you are in the midst of finishing a project or in the height of your career that you just want to give it another two years before you make that big move to Australia
0: okay what am I forgetting what are the other frequently asked questions or what other advice do you have that I've
1: gotten yeah, so to I'm ask about to, I'm trying to think um I, I think um you know that's uh, the, the big question. Is yes, I, I want to migrate, how can I do it? And I think we've covered that in either you've got to fit the skilled category or, or the family category, um, otherwise, there's no sort of in between um, processing times. Um, is also so a lot of you know questions. Um, temporary residency is quite quick, um, permanent residency, where there's a lot more integrity and um, sort of background checking on not only your um, qualifications or eligibility um, but also security as well. So, you know, dependent on the class of ease, it could take a few months. So, as you said, you know, don't delay if you do meet the criteria now. Get moving um, before that sort of gateway closes.
0: And um, migration down under also helps with new zealand is that right that's correct yes okay um, i'm gonna like, ask a big question and i know there's no easy answer is but it is it any easier is
1: great new zealand is that the question yeah, yeah that's it <laughs> that's what everyone asks is it easier for new zealand and it interestingly no not necessarily because i think new zealand set the set the benchmark when they um sort of changed their skilled migration program and Australia's followed suit because uh, New Zealand are pushing everyone into um, having an, a job offer, having an employer to sponsor them. But it is, it can be easier as far as age because they have a higher age bracket. In Australia, if you're a skilled migrant, you've got to be under 45, whereas in New Zealand you can be under 55. Um, so there's a little bit more scope there. Also, um, the occupation doesn't have to be as highly skilled. It can just be, uh, you know, an occupation in need and an employer um, is advertised and has a real need for that and can't find anyone in New Zealand, then that's often an easier option um, as well. But um, family migration, not necessarily easier. They have no options for parents. That was closed a while ago. Um, partners unless you've been living together for 12 months or more there is a wait to be able to apply for permanent residency you can get a temporary visa entry Um, a lot of people here who are on visas in Australia who have come to a dead end that don't seem to have any further options are often seeking options to New Zealand thinking it may be easier Um, but often Often it's not. If you don't meet the criteria for Australia, it's often that you won't meet the criteria for New Zealand, and um, it's sort of a. Um, but as far as job offers are concerned, um, I do hear that that can be sometimes an easier option for uh, New Zealand.
0: We did the points calculator, and we don't qualify for New Zealand, but we do qualify for Australia. Right. Inter- it, they're just so interesting. I, I encourage everyone to go do the points calculator. I mean, my husband is older than me. He's 40, and uh, he ha- is much more higher up in his career, advanced in his career. Um, but I have a master's degree, and my previous occupation, even though I haven't worked in it for five years, is actually in the demand section of Australia. And um, because I'm younger, I actually get I think 10 more points than he does
1: Oh, okay. when we do
0: Australia. So it's, um, it's full of surprises, I guess.
1: Okay, so you do have sufficient points for migrating to Australia then?
0: <laughs> we do, yeah. Okay, what's
1: stopping
0: it, you? Uh, I think we've been sort of spoiled with having companies move us. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we just keep holding out, hoping that a company is going to move us over and do all the work for us. Right. But it's yeah. definitely not happening quickly this time around. Mm-hmm. I think that um, unless something happens pretty quickly, we need to get our applications in and just start it kind of as a side project uh, mm-hmm. and just get it going because we would yeah. really like to go back there, especially if we have five years to actually mm-hmm. save That's up enough right. money to do it. To, to
1: actually go and do it. Yes. Yes. Because you could just go and activate it and then, sit and wait um, for those five years uh, for an opportunity to come through. Because then you're more likely with that residency open doors to um, job offers.
0: Okay. So there you have it. Clear as mud, right? I honestly had to listen to that interview twice cross-referencing what Julie was saying with the Australian government's immigration website just trying to wrap my head around it all. And Julie did a great job answering my questions. I do feel like I got um, a lot of answers. However, one of my key takeaways from our discussion was that um, this truly is a complex and dynamic beast with many layers. And if we personally decide to um, independently apply for Australian visas... I think we would definitely go forward with a service like Julie's that could help us determine the best course of action for our individual situation and um, help guide us through the process because otherwise I am sure that we would feel pretty overwhelmed and lost at times. So um, I've got some great useful links for you in the show notes, as well as um, Julie's website. And Julie puts out super, inf- she has a whole library of super informative videos on YouTube. And I've got a link to that also in the show notes. I would love to interview a family that has gone through this process and migrated to Australia. And hear how it was for them and what it's been like living there and adjusting to life down under. So if that's you or anyone you know, please send them my way. I've got more episodes of Big Dreams Bold Moves coming your way from all over the world. So be sure to hit the subscribe button now so you don't miss out. And thank you for hanging out with me today. Until next time, keep dreaming those big dreams and scheming bold moves.